0: hey everyone it's good to be together i just hope you've had the opportunity just to take advantage some of this incredible weather over the past couple weeks hope you had the chance just to get outside and just enjoy god's good creation hey if you have your bibles or an electronic device with the bible app on it why don't you open with me uh, to the book of nahim If you're wondering where it is is it usually doesn't get a lot of airtime it's found in the old testament it's sandwiched in between the books of micah and habakkuk we're going to be wrapping up um, just the short series on this book you know last week we spent some time looking at chapter one and this week i want to continue on with the book and really just consider some verses from chapters two and three there's too much content in each of these chapters um, to really go verse by verse in our time so i just want to highlight a number of things and just give us some thoughts to consider in our time here together. So the book opens in chapter one, verse one, saying this, that it's an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Eklosh. Pastor Jory mentioned last week that the word oracle translates in the Hebrew as burden. That's really a great way to describe the book of Nahum because that's what it is. Like it's a burdensome message of judgment against Nineveh. You know, it's peculiar that Nahum's name actually translates and means comfort. That can seem a bit ironic given the content of the book. Yet when you read the book through the lens of chapter one, it becomes quite clear that God in his revelation of himself is a comfort to those who trust in him and find refuge in him. And he is just and he puts right Those and those things who set themselves against him. You know, so let me remind you as we read and process this book, look at it through the lens of chapter one. And one, let it bring comfort to your heart. And two, let it convict your spirit as we consider God's ways and who he is. So why don't you open with me. Nahum chapter two, starting in verse one, we're going to read, um, through verses one through four. The scatter has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the Cypriot spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets and they rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Okay, these first four verses, like there is, it paints like a picture of a frenzy of events that are happening. Like you can almost palpably feel the tension, the swiftness of action. A couple of reminders, just as we get going, like we're dealing with God's judgment against Nineveh. It's being executed towards Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian empire, which has grown to be a prolific powerhouse in that time. And the, Assy- the Assyrian empire was actually established by bloodshed, by massacre, by cruelty, by torture, by destruction, plundering and exiling to an extent, which has seldom been seen in history. You know, Jory mentioned last week that a way in which we can understand how the Assyrian empire grew, that we can actually draw um, comparisons and draw, can draw parallels to Nazi Germany and how the Jewish people were treated during that time. So understand this, the way in which the Assyrian empire grew and became powerful, was through complete and utter wickedness. And Nahum's book is a sequel to and a dramatic contrast with the book of Jonah. Jonah was to warn the large city of God's impending judgment because of Nineveh's wickedness. You know, to Jonah's dismay, the Ninevites actually heeded his message in that time and they repented and they were spared God's judgment Nahum though is a a book that is a sequel to the book of Jonah yet has a different outcome. In Nahum, we see God exercising and flexing his righteous judgment. Why? Because he is a jealous God who is slow to anger. He is an avenging God who deals with those who sets themselves against him. He deals with sin. Look at the language that we find in verse one. It says this, the scatter has come up against you. Man the ramparts. God is saying like, get to your posts, Nineveh. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. God is saying to Nineveh through Nahum in this moment, do everything you can in your own power, in your own wisdom for how you got to this place. All the evil that you know how to enact all the force of your armies, all the strength you possess and show me how that's going to stand against the author of all things. The one who controls the entire universe, who is great in power, who controls the sea and the wind as we learned about in chapter one. Everything that you possess, set it against me and see what happens. Uh, Friends, I think we need to often pause and remind ourselves of who God is. Like He isn't weak and he isn't feeble. He's not passive or apathetic towards sin and towards evil. He knows what he's doing throughout all of history. He knows what he's doing. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. He holds all power. He holds all authority. And if you find yourself in discouragement or anxious about what's taking place in this world, then take your eyes off of what you see and set them on him. Remind your very being of who God is. Dwell on him. Like one of, the th- one of the reasons I think we actually become so resistive towards worshiping the Lord is because we actually have a shallow or an inadequate picture of who God is. Like Psalm 97 verse five, five, it says this, that the mountains melt like wax before him. Nahum, we read this last week in chapter one, verses four through five, that God rebukes the sea and he makes it dry. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. Like think about that for a moment. Like if you've ever driven west from Calgary, heading into the mountains, like I'm sure you've taken a moment just to, to take it in. Like the, how big they are, the grandeur, the majesty of those mountains, yet they pale in comparison to the Lord. The scriptures actually say that, you know, they melt like wax before the Lord. Gosh, if we could ever get this deep inside of our guts or in our spirits, I think we would find an inner confidence and an inner peace towards who the Lord is and how we're to respond to him. Like I think most of the anxieties and fears or concerns of this world like simply wouldn't matter. And this is the picture that we're seeing here in verse one. The one whom nothing can stand against is taking his rightful place against evil. You know, it's, it's no wonder that Isaiah, when he caught a glimpse of the Lord in Isaiah chapter six, he says this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty is the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. Behold, I am a man of unclean lips. Like we need to be reminded often of who our God is and respond to him with our lives from that place. Do you remember Job in all of his sufferings that God allows to happen Like at the very end of the book, it's actually one of the toughest stories in the Bible for me to wrap my head around. God answers Job in chapter 38 out of the storm saying this, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge, talking directly to Job, brace yourself like a man and I'm going to question you and you're going to answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely, you know, verse 12, it says, have you given orders in the morning, to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Like often I just, I think friends, we just have too high a view of ourselves that isn't of God. And we have too low a view of who the Lord is. And we need to be reminded that his ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts, even as it pertains to how the Lord judges. You know, it goes on to say in verse two that as the Lord is setting himself up against what is evil, that the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob, the majesty of Israel. In essence, God is being true to himself. He made covenant with his people and he hasn't forgotten them. Like, even after they've been plundered, even after they've been ruined and we actually learn from history that that Judah fell as a result of their own sin and though God's people had failed because of their sin their failure would not be final that like God's faithfulness always trumps our failure second timothy 2:13 says this if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself like friends this is such good news for us For those who've surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ and are following after him, even as you graciously fumble forward and fail at times, the Lord is faithful to you. So I want to say this, if nothing can stand against the Lord, as we understand from chapter one, leading into two verse one, and if the Lord is the one who makes covenant and restores his people from chapter two, verse two, what do we have to fear in this life? Like there's no reason to fear this world unless you've actually set yourself against the Lord and want nothing to do with him. You know, and a question I think for us to consider is this, is there anything in our lives that we've set up against the Lord? Is there any area that he doesn't have permission to speak into? Are there areas where you think you know better than God and what he's revealed in his word? Look at the detail that we find in verses three through three through nine. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day. He musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets and they rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Like the Lord attacks Nineveh in a strategic way. Like God has a strategic plan of dealing with evil and dealing with his enemy. Like this specific type of details carries actually throughout the entirety of chapters two and, and in three, and we're not gonna be able to look at all of it, but look at verse four. God releases his ambush from the outside in. The streets and the squares that are referred to in verse four are those of the suburbs surrounding the capital. So Nineveh was fortified, at its city center by a fairly substantial wall, and all of the outskirts are being completely flogged by chariots and by men. And the men that we actually read about in verse three are ones who've seen war. It talks about their their shields being brazened with red, like they're stained with blood from war. And they're no strangers to violence. When you read in verse six, it says the river gates are open. The palace melts away. Verse six makes reference to the kosher river and that actually flowed through the capital city of Nineveh, you know, north of the city. Um, historically, it said there would have been dams that regulated the flow of water through the capital. You know, if you've ever read or seen Tolkien's, uh, the Lord of the Rings in the second movie, the two towers, picture this moment is when the Ents <laughs> break down the dam to wash away the filth of Isengard. Like it's one of, my favorite mo- one of my favorite moments in the movie, but God is, re- is unleashing his wrath against evil here. And he's strategic towards how it's happening. I want to say this. If God is strategic in how he deals with evil and how he deals with the enemy, then we need to be strategic as we deal with, with the enemy and evil, you know, our our enemy, of course, isn't against flesh and blood. Our enemy is spiritual evil and principalities that set themselves up against the Lord. You know, our our enemy is the devil. We know from First Peter, um, in five verse eighteen, it says this: that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour and we're called to stand firm and be on guard. John 10, 10, like a verse we're all familiar with, the thief comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. Like a great question we need to be asking is this, like what has been the enemy's tactics throughout this COVID season? Uh, Like we constantly hear of people who feel isolated or who feel lonely or who feel depressed and as a result of disappointment, what do they do? They pull away. They pull away from one another. They pull away from a relationship. Like many folks, you know, have opted towards vices or addictions that are sinful and that are unhealthy. Like, can I encourage you? Like, if you are living in secret sin, drag whatever it is you are dealing with into the light. Tell someone. Reach out. Get help. Like, if you've grown apathetic, towards waging war on sin in your life? If you have grown apathetic towards following Jesus, if you've grown apathetic towards the church, friends, I think you may be falling into a trap of the enemy. If you've pitted your life against other Christians as a result of the choices they made over issues of conscience, then I'm sorry but you're falling into the plan of the enemy. If the main source of your spiritual intake in your life is social media, be careful. You very very may well be falling into the plans of the enemy. Like think of what Jesus calls us to and prays over us in John 17, that we would be one with each other, that we would experience the same fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, as, as a leader and a pastor in this church, I believe we're called to be a type of church that makes war with the devil, that makes war with the enemy's plans. Like one of my pre- favorite preachers said this, I don't want to be a church where we are unknown to the spiritual realm. Like we read about in Acts 19, verse 15, where the sons of Skeva say to the Jews who are trying to cast out demons, invoking the name, Of Jesus. It says this in Acts 19. That Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you? Like I want us to be known as a place that takes seriously. Exposing the deeds of darkness. And walking in Christian victory. I'm not really interested in being part of a church. Where all we do is come together on Sunday. And sing songs that make us feel good. Or where we simply come to be entertained. Or have our needs met. I don't believe God's called us to that. I believe there's specific assignments that God has given Regina apostolic church. There are specific areas of influence that we are called to partner with his spirit in advancing his kingdom. In Regina, in Saskatchewan, and in Canada. And in the same way, as God articulates in detail how he is dealing with the enemy in chapters two and three, we need to be strategic in our day and age with how we deal with sin, with the enemy, and with evil. Like the call in our church is both local and it's national. We're called to be an Antioch type of church that equips and sends leaders locally and globally. You're going to hear from one of those leaders next weekend. We're called to be a house that is steeped in prayer marked by grace where healing and the prophetic flow freely and in abundance. We're called to be a house that is set apart in worship, unhindered, total surrender, Christ adoring spirit led worship. We're called to be a house that takes seriously ministering and raising up our children in the Lord. Do you realize in the last three years, we've had over 40 new births in this church and this year we're expecting many, many more to come. Like God is, is placing a prophetic mantle on the next generation in this body. And it's actually going to usher in a new season of ministry here at this church. We're called to care for the elderly and for our senior saints. Like our dear saints who've been trailblazers in this place. Like we love you. Keep serving the Lord with zeal. Keep dumping fuel on young hearts to go after Jesus. Even if it looks different. We're not called to be a church that is idle in this time. We're called to be a forerunner in the city, not for our namesake but for his kingdom and God has been about purifying our body over the past number of years to crystallize and fortify where we're going to need to go in the future. Psalm 144 says this, "O praise to you. My rock who trains my hands for war. Let us be a people who rejoice and worship Jesus always as we partner with the spirit in advancing his kingdom. Let our be hands, be hands of war towards evil and towards the deeds of the devil. Let us not be idle. Look, look at verse nine. It says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of precious things. You know, Nineveh was known for its wealth and it, it exacted tribute from countless kings and kingdoms throughout the ancient Near East. It's fascinating that the text mentions this because the city may have been rich in earthly things, but it was poor in true riches. You know, in Matthew six, verses 19 to 21, it says, do not store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up, your, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You remember Jesus and the rich, rich young ruler in Mark 10? You know, as Jesus was setting about on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded after a, couple moment, after a couple comments, saying this, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But he was deeply dismayed by these words. And he went away grieving for he was a man. He was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said this to his disciples, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Friends, I think we need to honestly ask ourselves, like Nineveh had this immense amount of wealth and they were spiritually poor. I think we need to honestly ask ourselves, like where's our treasure? Is it, is, is it in a need for acceptance? Is it, is it in a need for friendship? Is it in a need for a particular relationship? Is it in a need for a particular status or a particular outcome of life? Listen, these things aren't evil in and of themselves, but if they are elevated above our need for the Lord himself, then they will become an idol that ultimately robs us and leaves us unsatisfied. For Nineveh, they didn't want God. They desired the things of this world. They didn't want to repent in this time. They didn't want to turn from their ways and bend their knees to the Lord. Like look at the language in chapter three, verse one, it says this, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end of prey. Skip down to verse four. It says this, all of the countless whorings of the prostitute graceful and deadly charms who betray the nations with her whorings and people's, With their charms. Like, this is clear and specific language that wickedness is what has marked this place. And there's no interest in turning from it. Like, look at the final verse that we read in chapter 3. Nahum's book actually ends with a question. It says this For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? I want to say this that part of God's judgment being executed is actually giving people what they actually want most. That leaves us with this question, like what do we want most? Like this summer we're gonna be taking an extended period of time to do an overview of the book of Romans and I wanna draw your attention to Romans one in verse 18 through 25. It says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to him because God had made it plain to him. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. It says, therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. You know, I often share about my encounter I had with the Lord when I was 15 and heard his voice audibly. You know, when I look back at the time, the Lord is abundantly clear with me that if I chose to go down a path, it would be a path that would lead to my death. It was a path that I was on that was absent of the Lord and I knew it. I was willfully disobeying the Lord and he wanted me to surrender to him. I'm often reminded like how thankful I am for how kind God was with me, how patient he was with me. You know, at the time of Nahum's prophecy, every nation on earth had experienced in one degree or another, the severity of Assyria's rulers, the exploitation, the oppression and the violence. Scriptures testified to their wickedness, the audacious boast of cruelty, and the pitless crushing of nations. Different commentaries actually mention the rows of impaled prisoners, captives through whom lip rings were fastened and whose eyes were put out and then they were flayed alive. This explains the rationale for Naam's prophetic message concerning Nineveh. God will not be mocked by individuals or nations. God will judge all nations according to his righteousness by his word and will have the final say in the affairs of humankind. Friends, I just want to close with a couple of these thoughts. Like if our response after reading this prophetic letter is getting our backs up against God or questioning whether God is good, then we've missed the the point of the book entirely. God is allowing us in this moment to return to him. He's slow to anger. He is good. He is also just and true to himself. He will bring the wicked to account. And where to take comfort in knowing that God is who he says he is. He doesn't let sin slide. He doesn't, he won't let wickedness prevail forever. He doesn't turn his eyes from evil. He deals with it and he deals with it in the right way. Not the way that we think is best, but rather the way that he determines is best. So I ask you today, have you surrendered your life to him? In every way, is there any area in your life that isn't yielded to him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just these words. We thank you for a text and a book that can often feel challenging. But Jesus, we praise you that you came and lived a perfect and uh, holy life, that you laid your life down, that you took upon yourself all sin, that you endured the wrath of God for our sin. And God, in your death and in your, resurre- your resurrection, you've given us your righteousness that we would be redeemed and forgiven freely and fully. And so I just ask in these moments, Holy Spirit, that you just come and convict and show us if there's any areas of our life that we have not yielded to you. And I pray for each one who may even be with us, God, who, is, who have set their lives against you and want nothing to do with you, that you would come and soften their hearts and make them pliable, to understanding your love and your patience towards them. We pray all this for your glory and we pray all this for your for the increase of your joy and joy in our lives in Jesus name. Amen.